Greetings, friends. Future Andrew here, dropping into these past episodes to tell you thanks. Thanks for checking out RTAF. If you're valuing the show as a wellspring of inspiration and artistic fuel and would like to help keep the show going, you can find out more about how to do that at patreon.com slash podcast. Every little bit adds up and keeps me inspired to bring you quality content on a consistent basis. Thanks for listening, and stay creative. Welcome to another episode of Artsy AF. Thanks for being here. In this episode, we talk to the just incredibly deep, multi-referential, non-local mind of Michael Garfield. Multi-talented. He's a... An artist, he's a musician, he's a speaker, he's a... Hey, you're a speaker too. Oh yeah, I am a speaker. So that that you guys have in common. Wow. And uh, to give you a sense of, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with this because there really is no beginning or end to this. It's just kind of this tour through the mind of a person who's read so many books and just see now i'm just i I can't even i can't even that's what this podcast is gonna do to you sit back relax and let michael's otherworldly brilliance wash over you and allow the world to become a little more wondrous so here we go get in your spaceship and uh make sure everything's uh locked in tight We're loose. I mean, I don't know how you want to pilot this thing, but we're blasting off in three, two, one. All right, so we'll just kick it off, I guess, officially. We're in Michael Garfield's house here in Santa Fe, and instead of um, the wind breakers on our mics that we usually have... We've got baby socks on here because Michael is a new father. <laughs> that was my Oprah voice for your uh, for your recent achievement of uh, you know continuing your biological and genetic line. Yeah, I, I have a baby girl and she's awesome. What's her name? Her name is Ada, after Ada Lovelace, the 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 prophet of digital music and art. Oh, cool. She was the. Um, she was the the sort of disowned daughter of the poet Lord Byron. Oh, really? And yeah, her and her mother, uh, like she never met her father, I guess, after she was an infant. He, he went off and died doing some foolish, you know. Englishman thing. Yeah. Like <laughs> I think he went, I, I'm trying to remember the deal. I think he went off and like fought in like the Greek revolutionary civil war or some. Anyway, he... Uh, he he didn't want to be a dad and kind of kicked them out hmm. after she was born and he died when she was eight, and then um, the she her mother decided that she was never going to let her daughter be a poet because <laughs> <laughs> because of that asshole and so uh, she she trained her daughter in mathematics like she had her tutored in math mm-hmm. and so her daughter ended up being this this interesting um, blend of like mathematical and metaphysical study. And at the age of 12, 
like court was corresponding with you know natural philosophers about how to transcend the limits of the human body and <sighs> and designed a steam powered flying horse like a like a mechanical pegasus that Whoa. like a flying machine at the yeah, age yeah, of 12 yeah. obviously it never got off the ground but like but then, like as she got older, she ended she ended in a correspondence with Charles Babbage, who invented the first like uh, geared digital computer, mm-hmm. the, the the difference engine, which at the time was only being used to calculate basic mathematical functions. Mm-hmm. And in one of her letters to him, she said, "If this thing can do mathematical equations, then it can do anything that's based on math or geometry." You know, and so she imagined one day that it would be used to create music and art and all of these other things. And so she, and she wrote the first computer algorithm. Like she wrote the first uh, program for this device Wow! and was obsessed with, uh, <laughs> this is like, this is like such a, like uh, a, a thing, like this, like smart girl, steampunky kind of vibe. Yeah. She was obsessed with, uh, trying to predict the outcomes of horse races <laughs> and like wanted to write an equation, an algorithm do, so. that she could crunch the numbers so that they could just like win all of these, this like horse gambling. Yeah. Uh, but so, and anyway, she's, she's got like this weird, awesome sort of like outlaw complicated uh, legacy. <laughs> and uh, that's where technology goes, porn and gambling. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really setting this girl up for a, uh, you know, a reputation. <laughs> <laughs> have Sweet. you have you noticed any uh, crazy radical shifts uh, in relation to yourself having a mini me outside of you? I mean, I, I, we talked a little bit about this earlier. That you know, I I've been doing social media for the Santa Fe Institute as my day job now for the last six months, and you know that grew out of being an artist mm-hmm. and being you know, having to live on social media the way that we do, you know, having mm-hmm. to, ha- having to hustle social. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's obviously, it's a very different thing when you're working from behind the logo of an institution and it's not your own thing, you yeah, know, right. but it's still like all day, every day, like in the trenches of that stuff. And around the time of her birth, I was like really, you know, just preparing, working hard for her to to prepare for her. I was starting to really get kind of burnt out on it. And then like after she was born, I was like, what the hell am I like? This is awful. <laughs> like there, in the last week, I started a Facebook group uh, called Complexity Explorers to discuss like system science yeah, yeah. and stuff for for SFI. And I tried to take a few days off you know, cause I'm technically on paternity leave right now. Uh-huh. Uh, but like two days in people, like it just, it went ape shit without me there to moderate it. And like <laughs> people were posting all this insane political stuff and like really? arguing about 3d printed weapons and like all of this stuff. And I, <laughs> I like checked in and like, th- like three, f- three posts had been flagged for, for right. removal. And oh I was gosh. like, what the hell? Like I left for two days and the house is on fire. And yet I was just like, Oh God, like that's the main thing I've noticed is that I don't feel like I have patience for that like ecosystem anymore. Mm -hmm. Like it's, and, and yet I'm like 
chained to it now professionally. Yeah. So I'm in this weird spot where I have to negotiate really like I have to think about it like like I'm working in like a like a nuclear plant or something and like right. I'm like I know that you and I were talking about um my my sort of uh mentor Richard Doyle mm-hmm. uh, the English professor at Penn State and how he, he and I had a conversation right before I had this kid about how memes are like their own life form and that they infect us mm-hmm. and that like when we talk about viral memes that that's like actually more accurate it's more know. literal <laughs> than we than we give it credit and mm-hmm. that that um you know I've been starting to think about this stuff less casually lately about you know really what are we doing with our time mm-hmm. you know how are we, like this this is a machine that was invented to harvest our attention and i'm not saying anything new there right, right. but like mm-hmm. i'm definitely feeling it in a way that i was like conceptualizing it before and now every time i get onto my phone it's like i can feel something like draining Holy my <laughs> my life force it's gross yeah. mm-hmm. you know and it just it's it's so obvious because it if i'm on facebook it means i'm not paying attention to my infant daughter mm-hmm. yeah, and that's exactly. like clear that that's the case right now in a way that it wasn't clear before when i was like oh i'm going to integrate my whole life my work is going to be my my joy and i'm i'm going to follow my bliss and i'm going to do all this mm-hmm. shit and it's like well really what does that really look like it looks like i'm spending like 9 hours a day on facebook and like 1 hour 2 hours painting or playing music mm-hmm. or whatever. And mm-hmm. like some, at some point I got completely upside down with it. And right. so that's the big difference is I feel like it's, it's aligning me uh, with respect to what really matters, not just her, you know, as like an extension of my genes or whatever, but like this sense of like, it's become very obvious how I'm using my time and my attention and, and how a lot of the ways that I've been using it for the last, you know, since 2004 mm-hmm. or something are just completely toxic and fucked up, you know, and yeah. just getting worse. Yeah. And maybe it served you at a certain point, but it's become irrelevant now, you know, as your priorities change or. I wonder, the, I wonder, yeah. I wonder how much it really served me, you know, because it's like, if you work for, <laughs> you know, if you, you know, there's, there's a certain, I think we're as a generation, I think we millennials are, uh, like Stockholm syndrome kids, you know, that like, which is, which hostage is by yeah, technology. Yeah. That we've been held but hostage. <laughs> yeah. And, but we're like, but it, but that's, but I sell my art on Instagram yeah. and it's like, yeah, but you know, the most successful artists I know don't, <laughs> you know, they don't need it. Right. And like the most successful, like my, my father who is very successful in, in business, um, you know, like people are constantly hitting him up to connect on LinkedIn and he's just like, F that noise, you know, like, you know, when you think about, um, historian William Irwin Thompson wrote an essay a couple of years ago that really touched a nerve in me where he was talking about the higher, the more power you have, like the more important you are, the less mediated your news is. It's like Obama at the time of the writing of this article, he was like, Obama gets all of his news from somebody telling him face to face. Yeah. Like he has like this aides and, and informants that are like, here's the news. Yeah, yeah. And then like, you know, a little bit further down the totem pole, you're, oh, you're reading, uh, you're reading the newspaper and a little further down the to- totem pole, you're watching TV. And then like where we all have like 
Begun, settled. Yeah, settled is like we're hearing about it like fifth or sixth hand from a friend's friend sharing some like commentary on commentary yeah. on a news article. And like <laughs> by the time it's by the time it gets to us, it's like it's Telephone. like it's processed food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like so digested that there's no there's no actual facts left in right, it, right. you know, and it's just it's it's awful. So, you know, moving to Santa Fe is interesting because there are so many old people here and so many people that just reject technology mm-hmm. um, or like the modern. So what we think of right now is modern technology and like there's St. John's College and SFI and all of these other sort of August institutions that are like we read books. Yeah. You know, and I read the primary sources and my, my buddy Ryan Greendike went to St. John's and he said that like when they taught him calculus at St. John's, you had to learn German so that you could translate Leibniz. Who was a yeah, calculus he's guy. Like, yeah, one, like one of the guys that was, you know, him and Newton are, are attributed as like the co-inventors, independent discovery of calculus. But like you know, they, they, they go back always, they go back to the primary sources. Yeah. And I was like, I can't even remember the last time I read the book that something was, you know, like I just read all this like digested, synthesized right. stuff and summaries and headlines mm. and yeah. skimming and yeah. Listicles. What do you mm. think that's doing to, I guess the collective conscious is like the best way I can put it. Do you think that, I mean, the sense I get is that people are just fed one of two or maybe three opinions on a certain thing and then they it, they're almost like forced to pick by the by virtue of their echo chamber on whatever social media platform they're getting their news from do you think that's an accurate uh take of what's going on here well i think that the in terms of news i guess yeah just in, well i mean in, in general i mean people when it comes to that kind of thing. I think we're living in a world where we're sort of encouraged to eat whatever you want, you know, to continue this sort of media diet analogy, which is pretty, a pretty deep groove at this point. Um, and you know, you can, you can be of whatever ethnic background you are and you, you, your genes are, have moved all over, all around the world and are so dissociated from the environment and the agricultural context that your genes actually like uh, aligned in, you know? So we have like, you know, you and I are, are all, you know, like heavily like Northern European and yet we eat all of the spicy food and like the spicy food there spicy food is for people living at lower latitudes because the food spoils faster Mm-hmm. down there and so you need the spices to deal with that and so like we've we've created technological solutions for people that get like uh gastrointestinal distress from like oh i love eating this stuff but it's not actually i'm not actually adapted to it right you know and like the same is true of like lactose intolerance you know it's just like ah, just take a pill and so i think there's something in that about you know we're sort of encouraged to uh you know the it's an amazing thing of modern world that we can get, you know, that we can choose whatever, you know, that we're not limited to like we were in the fifties and sixties, everyone reading the same newspaper, watching the same news channel on television. But again, William Rowan Thompson, uh, 
wrote this excellent book called The American Replacement of Nature, mm-hmm. where he examines in the 1990s, he's talking about even even before the web, he's talking about how television broke down cultural consensus because you don't like or like cable TV and like all these things. Like he says, the you know the, the Reagan got elected because he was on because television shifted from everyone reading the New York Times and discussing the issues to looking at the television and basing their opinions on how somebody performs, how somebody mm-hmm. looks. He's the yeah, most yeah, charismatic. Yeah. And you can like watch all these different news channels and get all these different angles and you can pick your reality tunnel, you know, right, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, that whole thing. And, and so, you know, that's great until it's not, you know, right. like the fact is, you know, you can, the fact that you can watch cable television in a, a moving vehicle right now sounds great but there's like this horrible tension between the freedom to do whatever the hell we please in society right now and the fact that like just because you're filtering out uh information so that you're only exposed to what's convenient for you is actually an existential risk like you're Mm -hmm. not actually like i think that in the next couple decades we're gonna select out all of the cultures and people, individuals that insist on this notion that there is no reality or whatever that, you know, that like there's like, Oh, okay. There's no reality until you're watching like Wally and driving your car off the edge of the road, right. you know? And like that there is, <laughs> yeah, I, I really, I, I think that it's gonna, it's, it's backfiring on us in a huge way. Because uh, we we don't cohere mm-hmm. anymore, and it's not just a, a you know the the issue of cultural cohesion. It's the issue of like I remember a few years ago, um, Parag and Ayana, uh, Ayesha Khanna, who are this this married couple of futurists, were talking about augmented reality, and they were talking about how I thought this was uh, super dystopian and fucked up, but they were they were kind of speaking in favor of the idea that you could use augmented reality glasses to move through a city and just have it like block out homeless people. What? What? You know? And that like, I don't, I mean, I don't know really where they stand on that, but it seemed, it seemed sort of like, Hey, cool. Like you'll be able to like, you'll be able to filter out all of the things that make you uncomfortable. And I was like, yeah, except if I were a homeless person and I was functionally invisible to the wealthy. I would rob the shit out yeah, of you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like it, it doesn't actually like. I think we're we're coming up on like a really like a collectively. I think we're coming up on a a reckoning with truth, like a bottleneck or something. Yeah, where like everybody everybody who thinks that they can just sort of like skate on by, you know, this like planetary crisis in virtual reality is going to get their asses handed to them. One of the best examples that I can think of is um, uh, we talked about, we had a special episode where we talked about this on future fossils podcast about uh, uh, the Peter Watts's novel blind sight, which in which they have uh, they've genetically resurrected the vampire where it's like they, they found out that like that there was a human subspecies in the Pleistocene that actually went extinct and that they, they managed to like, um, they had like fangs and shit. Well, like, well, like this notion, (laughs) so it's like, okay, so you know, you know how they have like, uh, 
There's this talk about making like turning the genes on and off in a chicken to make it back into a dinosaur. Uh-huh. That there's like that this notion that they can do like paleogenetics and turn a normal human being back. That that basically like autism, like uh, savantism and uh, sociopathy are both like vestiges of this human subspecies that was way smarter than human beings, but had like a brain glitch uh, that they, they uh, couldn't deal with like reality. That, yeah. They, well, they, they couldn't deal with like their visual processing made it so that if they saw right angles that they would have a seizure. Freak so out. the crucifix glitch. Uh, so it's like the science fiction uh, version of vampires. Ooh. And then like in this future, a hundred years from now, they've resurrected the vampire to outsmart the financial AI that is now like running the world because they have to like, it's basically like this. She swallowed the spider to eat the fly. You know, like we keep inventing bigger, like more sophisticated uh, machine intelligences to understand the other ones. And so it's right. sort of a metaphor for that, I think. And in that future, also, that, like millions and millions of people are living basically in these like virtual reality crypts where they've just given up on the world and they're just living in their own personal heavens. Their little backups or something? Well, no, they're or... just, they've just like signed out and they're living in like their matrix pod oh, and they're like gosh. having their own little happy land. And then it, you know, he, he, he suggests, although it's never really made clear at the, at the end of the novel, because it's all taking place in space. But at the end of the novel, the guy is wondering if when he gets back to earth, if the vampires haven't broken out of containment and just like devoured everyone in their little virtual oh, yeah. reality coffins, <laughs> you know, cause it's like, you can, you can believe whatever bullshit you want, but there, you know, there are, right. there are things out there, you know, there, right. here, there be tigers. Like, yeah, and if yeah. you ignore the edge of the map, then you do so at your own peril. Right. So anyway, it, it kind of seems akin to like, um, how we use, antibacterial soap like we all thought that that was a good idea (laughs) at one point but now the bacteria is just stronger and like now these like realities and and things in the world are just that much more i don't know present and when you bump up into them you're just not ready at all that's capitalism that's externalities right like in order to in, in order to make profit with a limited, re- like a limited base of resources, mm-hmm. in order to have infinite growth of an economy with li- with finite resources, then you have to ignore most of the real value in the world. Like I remember in college, um, this is actually a pretty typical conversation now, um, or more typical than it used to be, uh, and I'm glad. But I remember in college hearing for the first time about. Uh, like if we were to try and put a dollar value on the carbon cycle or the water cycle, you know, that like the, um, the, the machinery required to replace what the ocean is doing for us for free Mm. is like, would cost us like 10 times the amount of money in the world and like 10 times the resources that we actually have like irreplaceable. Right. And yet we don't put a, uh, we don't put a dollar value on that on stuff. Right. Yeah. Because, because it's just sort of like, you know, when people first came, when European settlers first came to America and they just saw like, you know, bison from horizon to horizon. And they're like, we can just shoot these things all day, every day, forever yeah, and yeah. pile bones to the sky. And like, yeah. they'll never run out, you know? Right. And like, that didn't get us it's very far. How it works. No, it's not, <laughs> it's not how it works. So like, I think there's a lot of, you know, I wonder about this stuff to, to kind of step out on a, a limb here mm-hmm. with respect to, um, 
the, you know, all of the things that we regard as sort of functionally infinite, you know, like, or, or empty or like, you know, like uh, white space business opportunities, mm -hmm. like going into space, you know, when we, again, like when we first settled North America, we didn't regard it as inhabited or by finite. Yeah, or, or finite. We're just like, oh, endless resources. And then I think that like we're right now we're doing the same shit with space, you know, like with asteroid mining, asteroid like mining, like Mars colonies, like even though even using the word colony is like problematic. Yeah, it is. you know, because it's like we're looking at Mars oh, right now. Cool. Yeah, we're looking at Mars and we're saying, oh, there's 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 probably no life on Mars. Let's, right. <laughs> you know, let's let's do the little like we'll pay a little lip service to like making sure that we don't see anything there. But then you've got like, I mean, that that's based on a specific idea of what life is that in a, probably another hundred year, 200 years mm -hmm. is going to be regarded as like hopelessly quaint, you know? Right, and right. like, I, it would not surprise me at all if in another hundred years, the legal framework on earth has changed to regard ecosystems as like deserving of their own legal rights and protection. Like yeah. the way that Ecuador has- Like they do corporations. Yeah, well, like, exactly. <laughs> it's like, well, if, if you know, Monsanto can be regarded as a person, right. then so should Pachamama, yeah. you know? So yeah, should absolutely. this river. And so the idea of like going to Mars and just sort of like treating it as though it's, you know, a, a blank canvas. Like, I, I really think that Burning Man is- like training for this in a way, like if you go to Burning Man, you look out at this desert and it's just a blank expanse. And you think, my God, this is a canvas upon which we can write the dreams of <laughs> the human imagination. You know, like this is the opportunity is, is just endless because it, it really feels like the surface of the moon. Mm -hmm. In 2006, I remember my friends and I, uh, I, I talked about this in future fossils episode one Oh five, where I had Who this, was on? Uh, this was John David Ebert, Michael Aaron Kamen, and uh, Ikki Sojin. And um, we were talking about uh, this series of psilocybin-related extraterrestrial sightings that I had right after I got out of college. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I remember noticing that, like, there were... I'd, I'd been at this place for... I've been, you know, tripping out at this particular beach in Kansas on this lake uh, for years and had never seen anything like this and had really like used the psychedelic experience as a crucible for training my reason, you know, for like learning to tell the difference between perception and hallucination, mm -hmm. you know, for like finding my way through the maze of, of noise. Mm -hmm. And I remember... Uh, Noticing that there were these two trips in particular, one where there's a, a, a new moon, no moon at all. And I saw like a couple of these bizarre sort of like almost like bioluminescent deep sea creatures swimming around in the sky. And my friends also saw them. And then we went back two weeks later with a different group. Full moon. And it was a full moon. And there were hundreds of them. <laughs> and it looked like they were attracted to the moonlight. Like they were like bathing in it, yeah. swimming in it, like desirous of it. And I was like, there is an entire invisible ecosystem of shit here that if we were to like go heart, like just mine the moon, God only knows what kind of damage we're doing right. to this, this thing, this like these, this entire ecology that to us 
we don't even ex- we don't even accept that it exists. Yeah, you know, like it's like fairy world, mm-hmm. you know. But like the question of, um, I just recorded an episode of Future Fossils with Sean Hargens, mm-hmm. who is working on, um, what he calls exo studies, which is like a, a, a you know extremely rigorous sort of multi perspectival examination of of UFO lore, and you know he he. Uh, he was talking about like we were, I was asking him why why he thought, you know, and this is pretty common in in the the UFO mythos that like why is it that UFOs show up suddenly? Like they've always been there like sightings throughout human history, but like they show up in in mass after we start detonating nuclear warheads. Mm. You know, and like right. and there's all of these reports from nuclear bases of like these dudes with top secret clearance and and authentication keys that we trust every day with our lives implicitly saying yeah, these UFOs showed up outside the base and like suddenly all of our warheads went dud and then we, we pulled them apart and we have no idea why. Mm-hmm. It's like they seem to, they seem to be taking an interest in... Uh, preserving in, us. In, well, it's not necessarily that they're preserving us. It's like maybe... We, yeah, maybe we don't realize that when we detonate one of these things that it's causing some sort of like damage to the etheric Fourth body dimension. of the planet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah. it's doing something to a world that we can't even see or understand. Right. You know, well, it, when I was, when you were talking just now, I was thinking about, uh, your podcast with Bruce, uh, Damer and yeah. you were talking about how he has that origin of life, um, kind of study he's been doing and you brought up, maybe it was you, maybe it was him, but one of you guys brought up the fact that like life on earth wouldn't have been able to evolve if there were actually multicellular organisms because they would have just eaten the things that were actually creating the structure, the infrastructure of life to actually flower forward. And so that, to me, that kind of like is the same thing of like, we may be like, if we go to Mars or something like that, we may be that multicellular organism that just comes in and we're like, what's this? And it just like ruins everything (laughs) for the next billion years. Yeah, Alex Lightman, who's a you know a really interesting fut- you know, yeah, futurist and stuff. Yeah. I don't know if you saw his post uh, the other day um, where he was talking about. He claims that he has met extraterrestrial beings, oh. but that they're all uh, basically like deep undercover because he's like they're not here to. S- it's not that they're here to save us. He talks about he compared it to like in lifeguard training when you know. You have to figure out how you're going to save somebody who's drowning because you have to swim feet forward. Well, yeah, it's like he says they actually train them in like hand to hand combat, like basic. (laughs) There's like, you know, a a certain amount of of wrestling that you have to learn to save somebody who's drowning, because if they're drowning, they will they'll they're freaking out and they'll try and take you down with them. And he was basically saying that. He's like, are you kidding? Like when, when we, you know, like the first thing we're going to do if we, if we find out the aliens are real is open fire, Yeah, you know, like we're not like, they're not trying to save us exactly. Or, or if they are, they're, they're, they have to do so in a way that we don't drag them in with us yeah. into this mess, totally. you know? Totally. Um, I don't know. It's such a lark, but Yeah. <laughs> Would you ever consider that? What if the purpose of humanity is to devour all resources, <laughs> and that we're not meant to live forever? 
and that born out of us is a higher form of intelligence, not limited by uh, like a deteriorating body. And that like, what if our whole purpose is to eat it all up and squeak by to unleash something more intelligent and not limited to uh, a meat body like us? Well, okay. So this is great because now I can do like a like a hairpin turn back into something even sort of scientific. Um, the, uh, the former president of Santa Fe Institute, Jeffrey West, uh, whose book is on the shelf right there, scale. Um, he was looking at the, the, the energetic, like the thermodynamics of living systems at different scales. Mm -hmm. And some of his early research was on how, like, as you scale up the volume of a creature, the basically like the time that it takes to integrate all of the signals and, and energetic processes of that thing increases, but it actually becomes more energy efficient at, at scale. So there's a, there's a power law where something that's twice an, a, a mammal with the same metabolism as a mammal, half its size oh, is yeah. only using uh, it's not using twice as much energy. It's using 1.5 times as much energy. It is a 0.75 power uh, to scaling something with the same metabolism. And then he found that he could apply that to cities and found that a city with twice as many, he has a great Ted talk about this, by the way, a city that has uh, twice as many residents in it across all of the cities that they studied mm -hmm. um, is point. It's a 0.85 power. Mm -hmm. So, Twice as many people in a city means um, uh, only 85% as much re, uh, infrastructure per capita, but then also 115% the pace of innovation and all of the other things that come out of networks like disease, crime. So, let me get this yeah. straight. If you're in a city with more population, however the scale is, you're, you, you're actually using less you're using only 85% resources to do more than a city smaller? Well, you're using 85% per capita. Okay, gotcha. So gotcha. It's, it's, yeah, it's like 170% of the resources, but less than it would be if you had two cities of, you know, that many. The same you're, population. Yeah, it's Got like you. the sum is different than uh, the, you know, it's greater yeah. than the, the, I mean, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Right, yeah. So... Um, but what he says about that is that the the reason that that works is because of these network effects that accelerate uh, innovation. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have 115% as many patents per capita. You know, you have 115% as many startups per capita. Mm. And so you get into the, like, you can feel it. You know, he talks about the people who live in bigger cities walk faster, like measurably, mm -hmm. oh, you yeah. know, you every the, the entire pace of life speeds up inside a city. Um, and that the, and, and so really in that sense, cities are sort of more comparable to ecosystems, whereas like companies are more comparable to individual organisms living in those ecosystems, mm -hmm. which is all to say, like, to come back around to your, your question, he says that like, as the, as things scale up, because it's this like super exponential curve, you know, everybody at this point, I think, is familiar with that, like Ray Kurzweil, 
uh, singularity, you know, yeah, graph yeah. that like it shows like exponential innovation going all the way to vertical. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jeff West is saying actually what happens is that again, like with the whole like fi- you know the reconciling finite and infinite that it's a finite time singularity so it never actually makes it to To infinity Mm -hmm. or it will just die because it's at that point that the metabolism of the city like exceeds its ability to actually it eats its organize resources right yeah and so yeah so uh what happens is an innovation enters the time stream where we sidestep we like postpone the inevitable and it makes it uh so like a new hockey stick like a new j curve starts Mm -hmm. and then it you know innovation speeds up again super exponentially until we get to a crisis and that you see like the actual yeah you the 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 big j is actually made out of this like exponential series of smaller j's Yeah, yeah which is to say that the um this whole notion that we're like consuming everything in order to get to the next phase mm-hmm. is not that it's not it's it's a, a sigmoidal curve or at, you know like the it's a phase change between one state of matter or one state of civilization and another but that each state is relatively stable and so like the the, the big question right now is are we, uh, like Charles Eisenstein talks about this, he's like, well, maybe the story that we ought to be telling ourselves is that we see this kind of exponential growth when we let a parking lot go to seed and then like all of the weeds come up and everything grows really fast. But that if you were to imagine where like a baby is born and mm-hmm. the baby is growing really fast and then your, you know, your futurists are, are like doom saying like, if this baby continues growing at this rate, then pretty, you know, by, within five years it'll be taking up the entire apartment. Like, you know, and, honey, honey I blew up the kid. That's that's got to be a movie already, right? Yeah. So, and like the same with like weeds in an empty lot. Like that's not the way that ecology actually works. Mm-hmm. And the question, the the big question right now is: Are is human civilization a J or an S? You know, are we? Um, yeah, most people seem to think that we're a J because we're just continuing to ratchet it up with faster and faster cycles of innovation to the point now where, you know, 98% or so of all financial transactions going on in the world are going on between high frequency trading algorithms that are sending money between banks faster than the human brain can even like witness it happening. Right. Mm-hmm. You we know? don't have the bandwidth to to catch up to our technology in a lot of ways. Right. We our hands are in the blender. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so, like to me, it doesn't look like a, an S curve. It looks like a. It looks like we're we're at the inflection point of a J curve where either we sort of like find a way to crystallize this and stabilize it and kind of hold it in place. Pump the brakes, so to speak. Yeah, pump the brakes, but like also like like it does require that sort of ecological metaphor where we see all of this as preparation for something that is, you know, the, the weeds are actually sort of creating nutrients for the soil that then allows trees to grow and so on. And mm-hmm. that, but then like Bruce Damer was talking about on my show, like, yeah. 
that's a much more stable ecosystem and like it doesn't not much but changes in a redwood it's but it's rigid but it is rigid and right. so like if our goal in civilization is to continue to push forward on this like luciferian task of giving <laughs> ourselves more creative freedom more more intelligence more novelty you know right. more convenience faster and faster machines faster and faster innovation then we're going to, we will drive ourselves over the cliff. Right. And like, it's really a matter of like, can we, can we be satisfied with what we have? And right now, like, and even if we could, like, are we, are we even at the wheel anymore? Like, I don't know that, I don't know that we are. I think that, you know, there's a, there's a solid argument that, civilization has been calling the shots as like a super organism for the mm. last 500,000 years or whatever. And yeah, that it's yeah. I mean, an like unquenchable thirst. Societies yeah, like, yeah. have mm-hmm. been driving these cycles of exponential innovation um, even before civilization for hundreds of thousands of years. And that we think that we are, you know, running the world, but really it's, it's this, anthill that we're all participating in that's calling the shots right you know and the and there's no there's no way for us to know as ants whether the anthill has any idea (laughs) that of what it's doing Uh you know we don't know if the if the anthill can tell that it's 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 like you know barreling headlong into its own demise yeah you know yeah i mean i to speak to what you asked, I mean, maybe that's the point is that there's just infinite behind the scenes uh, information and maybe even super organisms or entities that we don't know about that are calling the shots. You know what I mean? Like if, if we're one level as an individual and then like whatever our sub culture that we're all kind of involved in is another entity that we can kind of maybe we have free uh, choice to follow with it or not, but then at a level above that, you have, you know, I don't know, the United States as a nation, and then level above that is, uh, you know, and it just goes on and on. Uh, yeah, I mean... The Federation <laughs> of Planets. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, who knows? Yeah. Who, who really knows? I, Here's another angle to cut into that, um, that uh, one of my favorite science fiction authors, Charles Strauss, wrote this novel, Accelerando, about this very situation where our machines end up being able to model our economic decisions better than we can. They begin able to predict all of our activity, and they basically create a a simulated, mirrored version of our entire human world in the computer Mm. and end up sort of generating unfathomable wealth, but in a way that basically marginalizes all of human creativity and economic activity. We're like, we're not necessary anymore. Mm -hmm. And we get pushed out into the margins of the solar system as the machines eat all of the planets and turn them into computing Mm -hmm. power. And that process ends up with us as basically like the germs living inside of this enormous machine body Mm -hmm. where human beings continue you know, and like in the same way that germs are no longer in charge in some sense, right. but are also totally essential mm-hmm. right. to the ongoing processes of our planet. Like, I don't, I don't think that there's any evidence that any basic unit of life has ever been completely replaced, yeah. you know, at least functionally, like 
a bird is a bird is a bird, even if it evolved from a different kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, like every creature on the planet right now, dolphins replaced ichthyosaurs, bats replaced these weird flying reptiles, that, you know, these weird uh, pterosaurs that we didn't even know about until a couple years ago, but they were like nocturnal furry little reptile bats that were like all over the age of dinosaurs Mm -hmm. and like every niche is sort of its own thing in a sense it's like the niche is more real than whatever creature fills it so Mm -hmm. i kind of think there will always be human beings Mm -hmm. but in charles strauss's world it it does sort of s curve and where it stabilizes is a world where human beings are sort of functionally immortal but um, because we have become, because we're immortal and we're reliant on our digital technologies for our immortality, then we don't really know. Uh, there's no, like you, you never, like nobody can kill you exactly, right? Uh, wars don't really happen the way that they do now, but you can never be sure that you weren't hacked. <laughs> like wars are wars are done by converting by like mind control by like hacking into somebody and like they are now with fucking Cambridge Analytica and Facebook bringing mm. us full circle. Yeah, yeah. You know, like you don't need to shoot a gun. You just need to change people's beliefs about what they think reality is. Mm. And so in in that uh, in Strauss's future, people start voting out of of transhumanist immortality and saying, you know, fuck this. I would rather yeah. be. Uh, mortal and live and die and know that I am who I think I am than always, you know, live with this weird feeling. And so what happens is you get, you get like a, like a boil, you know, where like the surface of the, like the, the edge of progress is an equilibrium between mortals becoming immortal and immortals deciding they're not into it anymore hmm. and becoming mortal again. And so like, that's, well, that's like the stable that, point. Wouldn't like the competitive advantage of people that do meld with machines and the ones that tap out, wouldn't they eventually just get pushed out of the equation after generations? Well, like I mean, again, like no ability to compete or, well, I mean, what's the, first of all, like what's uh, the equation? Yeah. You know, the equation, the equation that externalizes everything that it doesn't regard as economically valuable. Like, mm. I mean, ultimately, the future that we're talking about, the future that Strauss was writing about, is a future where capitalism goes on believing its own bullshit forever. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. it's not, you know, the, I think that, again, I think that there has to be, and I hope that we're coming up on it soon, a point where we realize that that attitude of the sort of relevant and irrelevant is no longer adaptive, you know, and that we sort of have to take a cosmic perspective where even the unconscious, even the random, the irrational, it's all relevant, right? That it's all relevant somehow. It doesn't mean that we know how, but that we, that we look for ways to integrate it that are not just an attempt to reduce everything to number, you know, which again is sort of, you know, to, to pull this all the way back around, part of the sort of mixed legacy of Ada Lovelace because, you know, that was back in the, in the age when it was a, a a novel 
awesome, exciting, creative new idea that everything could be reduced to number. Mm. You know, like that, that was the sort of the angel told Descartes, yeah. you know, that like, you're going to, you're going to rule the world by reducing everything to, to, measure. to, to measure. Mm-hmm. And like, now we're at the point where it's like, actually the hard problem of consciousness still exists. Like yeah. we don't know how to take qualities and quantities and like jam one into the other. And that's what Sean Hargan's, his sort of like ultimate point, like studying all of this mysterious UFO shit is, is that if you really sit with these questions, then you get to a point where you realize that the equation that you have is forever partial and forever insufficient to describe what's really going on. Mm -hmm. And that the language that we're using to discuss the world, like the, the mind dimension or the matter dimension that these two things are just angles on something else that we don't have the language for that is neither mind nor matter and is both, you know? And so I, you know, I think if we can get to that point, then we'll stop eating our own feet, you know? But like, I don't, you know, I, I, it is a question of like, in a weird way, uh, you have to, you have to convince people that this is uh, a, a competitive advantage in capitalist terms, mm-hmm. because that's yeah. the that's the mind virus that we're all colonized with. Right. You know, it's like you have to say, "Hey, actually, you know, you might live forever <laughs> if you stop thinking like this right. and start thinking like this." Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and yet it's sort of like, why would you use quantum mechanics for baseball? You know, like why for most people, it's just the, the, the crisis has not hit home, but it's hit home for a lot more people than it did 10 or 20 years ago. It's amazing to me how many people are having this conversation compared to like when I was in high school, for yeah, example. Right. It's like, when does uh what's it? hundredth monkey wake up yeah. and it sh- causes a shift. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, the, the soil is just ripe for mm. this stuff. It's like. It's time. <laughs> it's time. It's time to have this conversation for sure. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, <laughs> like you're brilliant, man. Your mind just like explodes and you like, um, you know, before I even started painting, I listened to you with like talks on psychedelic salon, you're a painter, you're a musician. Like how did you get into all these different avenues, like public speaking, being an artist, playing music, like where does this all come from? This is an art podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. John's keeping us on task. I was going to ask an even more tangential question. You can say for later. Well, I mean, I don't know. I think sort of biographically. Okay. So there's this great line from um, Ernst Haeckel. I mean, you guys, you know who I'm, he wrote, uh, Art forms in nature. He was yeah, this 19th he, century. It's like he he, he almost uh, made these like imaginary or real like biological creatures, and they're like a lot of them are in black and white. Uh, a lot of them yeah. you see you see. There's like a current artist uh, R. S. Conant, who, yeah, who yeah. kind of like has that style too. It's like these crazy trilobitic slash you know uh, succulent uh, creature kind of things. But yeah, oh, yeah, I've seen that too. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, awesome. so Heckel was a nineteenth-century scientific illustrator who was <laughs> who was charged with the task of illustrating every creature. 
that had been dredged up by this, the world's first transoceanic scientific collection mission. Um, and, uh, they, they, you know, they gathered, they like went and dredged all this stuff up from the bottom of the sea and they brought it back to him and he spent years and years and years looking at this stuff through the microscope and drawing it and like microscopic creatures and all sorts of amazing stuff. There's a great documentary about him called Proteus. Oh, really? That talks about his life in the, in light of like the 19th century mind and, and how at that time, like, you know, science, art, and religion were still not all that differentiated. And he really saw his duty as a natural philosopher, as a scientist, as an illustrator, to be an exploration of the geometry of the mind of God. Mm -hmm. And we lost that. I mean, even Darwin was thinking that way, yeah. and which is totally taken for granted now. Um, or like ignored, you know, dismissed that Darwin was looking at, you know, was a deeply faithful man and was trying to, you know, and Einstein also, although Einstein's version of God was different mm -hmm. than Darwin's or Heckel's, but like it was this notion of understanding the transcendent through a study of the imminent, the, mm -hmm. the natural world. And so Heckel had this this uh, statement that has been, you know, very controversial where he said um, ontogeny, which is the development of the individual organism, you know, from embryo to adult um, recapitulates phylogeny, which is the entire evolutionary history of the organism. So like, so like, it, it, like a human life is kind of like a, just so I'm understanding, yeah. might be considered like a smaller version of the same fractal of like, human life yeah like, yeah in that, general. well okay. and that that like you know that he was he was thinking about it a lot more literally than we do now because it's like at some point in your embryo development you have gills and before that you're like kind of a worm thing and mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you know when we found genetics and got more into embryology people have tried to like you Check know out. attack that mm -hmm. and say oh you know that was that was nonsense but i think in a deeper way he was actually right um because of this, there's a whole strain in evolutionary biology now looking at uh, what they call developmental bias, but which is about mm -hmm. how the development of the embryo sort of is related to the evolutionary history of the organism and why, for example, humans seem like sexually immature uh, chimpanzees, you or know, like neotenous or whatever. yeah, yeah. That, that neoteny, this 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 trend in certain groups of animals, is because it's easier in it's easier to adapt by removing complexity than it is by adding complexity mm -hmm. in certain ways. So, like domestication, for example, is this is is an example is uh, an instance where you you move forward sort of by interrupting the process earlier and, you know, a child, you know, the, the brain of a younger organism is still very fluid and plastic and learning. And so if you're in a very complex environment, then you actually want to select for a childlike brain. So there's this weird sort of right. religious dimension to this, you know, like gospel of Thomas where Jesus is talking about having to enter the, kingdom of heaven by assuming the mind of a child, you know, that like 
the the future alien i'm gonna write an essay about this but it's been taking i i can't i don't know i'm like blocked and maybe it was just because I, I had to have the kid first yeah you know but like i wanted to write this i've been writing this series of essays about what the future is going to be like based on these evolutionary trends and one of these essays is about how uh the future human being is bound to be more childlike than the current human being you know more playful more mm. sociable more because um, the world is so complex yeah less yeah. bound like less bound to a particular static identity and we can already feel this on you know living online you know the the idea of the modern self just does not apply online yeah, anymore no. where mm -hmm. you can dance around between all of these different social contexts and yeah. so yeah. on yeah. um and you have to you know, yeah. critically, you have to do that to, to thrive in that space. Um, so at any rate, this is all like a heady answer to your question, which is, <laughs> which is that I, I, you know, I regard, Sorry, like, I don't think there was a point at which I started getting into these things. You know, I think that mm -hmm. the people who talk about their biography that way are like, either lying to themselves or just ignorant of the fact that everything emerges from this single origin and then differentiates yeah. in the same way that science, art, and religion used to just be alchemy or natural philosophy right. or, mm -hmm. or just discovery, you know, Cur like human curiosity takes all of these different forms. Yeah. And I uh, have very selfish reasons for telling a story of evolution in which curiosity is highly favored by, you know, as an, an, an adaptation to these accelerating and ever more complex environments. And so the story I'm going to tell about my own life is a story about how curiosity has been with me from the beginning and is, is, you know, cultivated and constantly grown and how, like, when I think back to my earliest memories, I don't, you know, there, I was interested in deep his, like deep time, you know, like the prehistoric world mm -hmm. and dinosaurs and, you know, like looking around on the landscape and being like, oh shit, this all used to be underwater. And mm -hmm. those kind of feelings came out um, at the same time that I was learning to draw and like learning to play music and, and that stuff. So it's not, I don't, I don't think it's healthy or wise to separate, um, scientific or philosophic curiosity from artistic curiosity, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I think that's melt, melt together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That, that really, if you trace them back to their origin, that there are ways in which the contents and the methods of art may differ in, I don't know what I consider kind of trivial ways, you know, from the contents and methods of science but it's still this like um, this cycle of observe, you know, hypothesize, experiment, reflect upon. Right. Uh, it's called the UDA cycle. Actually, it was a I forget the name of the the fighter pilot who came up with this whole uh, uh, explanation. But for, it, it's like the yeah. creative process in yeah. in general, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't Oscar Wilde have some sort of quote where he was like, I don't like it when people call me a writer. I'm just a guy who writes or I don't know. I could be wrong. I don't know. I'm like, come on, you know this. Oscar right. Wilde did not like being uh, pigeonholed. Pinned down. Right. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, I think that um, 
like when we were talking with Bobby and I was like, do you think everybody's an artist? I was like, I don't really, I don't really think so. And, and no, he gave like this brilliant explanation. Wait, which Bobby? uh, Cruz. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He, he gave us this brilliant explanation like, well, whether you realize it or not, you're still creating something in this world. So maybe just the differences and difference of like intent and like stepping fully into that creative process, you know? I think I the know. difference, yeah, like I I, um, I had a friend tell me that this was like, uh, that what I was doing, he called creative deconstruction. Oh, cool. Where, uh, you know, I was saying there is a way for you to look at anything you do as art or science or spiritual practice. Because uh, theologian Paul Tillich said that your religion is just your ultimate concern. You know, mm-hmm. like if you're a Wall Street broker, your religion is the market and the right. dollar. Right. And, you know, if you're a, I mean, it just like there's there's a way to make any sort of habit or, or intentional practice be the thing that has filled that psychological need for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the same is true, like you're saying, with art, where it's clearly like all of us are obviously creating something whether we regard it as art or not we're right. we're reweaving the pattern of the of, universe right, right and then also you know that that process is also a process of of exploration and discovery and and experiment and so yeah it's it's science i think that really what it boils down to is like where do you get hung up identifying with one or the other. Right. You know, like why? I've been feeling Why this. do you prefer right. thinking of yourself as an artist instead of a scientist or instead of a philosopher mm-hmm. or instead of a, a I, spiritual I, seeker? I, and for me personally, and maybe this is uncon I just maybe realize this. I think I just fit like the archetype of what's been considered to be an artist. So maybe it's already this sort of like somewhat pre-made uh construction handed down from however long you know like like you're falling into an idea of what you think you should be rather than just just a manifestation of your own curiosity right and i've been feeling this lately like i i really want to start doing Mm stand-up and yeah and uh and i'm kind of like i don't like just presenting at least a lot of the persona online is just like, oh, I'm a painter, and that's all I do. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know. It, 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 that's the ER thing like that I was getting back to. Instead of just making a painting, it, it's like people think of you as a painter, and that like has this like loop effect where you're like, yeah, I'm a painter. Yeah, see, they think so, so I am. And, and I don't know. It's just I don't like being pigeonholed either. I don't think when it comes down to it, anybody really does. Well, that's the weird that's the paradox again. That's like bug number 151 of social media, right? Yeah, is that yeah. The way that we have organized all of this shit online in order for people to find the things that they're interested in, mm-hmm. it does require like a hashtag. Or something. Yeah. You've got to be like or that brand. guy. Yeah. You, you've, yeah. you have branded yourself and that's the, that's fucked that's up. The fucked up part of yeah, it. Yeah. Is that like, I remember, um, I mean, and this is just true. This is actually, this is the worst, I think, on Instagram, like worse than on any other platform where like if you show like I'm doing my paintings, five paintings in a row. And then like, oh, 
I'm all, you know, here's a guitarist. Like here's, yeah. you know, here I'm going to play some music. And it's like, I am the whole guy, but I'll notice it's like, oh, you got a thousand likes on that painting. And then like two people saw your guitar yeah, like video. 50 people were like, oh, cool. You're also a guitarist. <laughs> what an asshole. <laughs> Who do you think you are? You know, oh, you're Mr. Special, huh? Oh, like that's not what I'm following you for. Yeah. You know, and there's yeah. like, there's something about having to filter yourself through the fragmented attention of everyone else's sort of yeah. captive panopticon bullshit on that, you know, right. on that platform. And, and I think that the, there's not enough room for people online. Yeah. And I think that the algorithm, whatever the fuck that is, it just yeah. sees like five paintings in a row and they're like, okay, consistency. Cool. And, and then all of a sudden something new comes along. If I just got on there and made a video and I told a joke or something, <laughs> you know, like, it's like I'm not only am I bucking the uh, people's expectations, like actual human beings, but probably also whatever. I and I don't understand this. You probably do better than I do, but whatever the algorithm is, it's like it's like oh glitch. We don't like that. We're not gonna show that to like anybody. And instead of like humans celebrating the the fullness and wholeness of someone, it's like since you've branded yourself that way. Or in whatever way well, the, you may have branded yourself as an artist, it, it, we're like unable, and maybe it even stirs up some sort of like aggression, je- jealousy kind of thing within us because all of a sudden, like you're comfortable with what this person has branded themselves as, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, inconsistency. Here's a random thing for you, and and I don't know if that if there's any psychological connection there. I don't know. Well, the, the algorithm is just, it's a reflection of us collectively, right. right? It's just a reflection of, it's trying to serve us for its own ends, like to, you know, to, to amass wealth or whatever for Instagram. For advertising. Right. But, but it, it's doing so by giving us what it thinks we want, you know? And so to the extent, to the extent that, uh, the, I think it really is sort of not separate from the issue of like defying expectations, you know, mm-hmm. and how, you know, if it's the same thing with like, you know, if you're queer and you come out of the closet and then everyone's like, your, your own parents are like, I don't know how to relate to you anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, that there is a queering going on here that like people are trying to figure out by um, like, I kind of understand why, and getting back to this whole issue of like the proliferation of partial fragmented identities online, Mm -hmm. you know, why it makes sense to have a separate music page and art page. Right. You know, and I did that on Facebook for a long time and, uh, it, it, it was irritating because I realized that the medium favors the eye, you know, and that it's harder to, it's harder to get people to pause and listen than it is for people to see a painting and be like, cool. Next. Next. (laughs) Yeah. You know, liked and then like screenshot and then shared as if it was their own. Like, you know, fuck you, by the way. Um, And also thank you to the pages who, who credit, who, who who do credit. Like there are some good ones out there too. Plenty. Yeah. Curation is, you know, curation is an art just like Brian Eno said it would become in the nineties. You know, he said curation is going to be like the, the dominant art form of the early 21st century. Wow. And profit he, much. Yeah, totally right. Uh, but um, he also, you know, he also said, I think, you know, he and Kevin Kelly were going back and forth about like 
with futures that they regarded as improbable mm-hmm. uh, back even before the web, like 92, 93. And one of the things that they came up with was uh, direct mail marketing, if you will, mm-hmm. um, is going to have such a a complete profile of your purchasing choices that they will be able to like that that they will be able to sell you things that you didn't know you wanted right. and that people will start buying things that they don't want just to throw off the machine. <laughs> and that was 92. And I was like again profit <laughs> right right. So I mean okay so that's kind of a lark but I do <laughs> think that um that there yeah that that there's something inherent about that this problem has its roots in the way that like the logic of the computers upon which we have built this entire thing because which is, which is like binary logic you know it's, it's like, a do one you want this or you don't want yes this. like a one or a zero like right. and it's the same thing with news too it's like yeah oh i want to be in this tunnel and not that one you know? right right and so the question is like is is there we know that the universe is not a binary computer Right. You know, we know this, you know, we know that like the Buddhists have this, like I mentioned with Sean Hargan's talking about extraterrestrial stuff, Mm -hmm. that there is a, a greater logic, which is, uh, like ternary or, uh, tetradic logic Mm -hmm. where instead of two, like yet, like either, or you have yes, no, yes. And no. And then, uh, sometimes people like the Buddhists would put, uh, neither yes nor no. Yeah, which yeah. is the void, like ne- right. the negation of, of, of all of those, those things. Choices, yeah. yeah. Or, and that, so like the material world actually, at least as far as like, as far as I can tell, um, is you get, is both, both and, and either or, both and includes of, either or. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and then also on top of that, you have the zero, which is neither. Void. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, so that's not the logic that we have built into these systems. It's not the way that these algorithms operate. And the only way that I, you know, I have hope for uh, quantum computers mm-hmm. to like help us think our way out of this mess because but then wouldn't the computer just be analyzing the other computers? I don't know. Well, what I mean is that, what I mean is that like, if we move to a platform where the logic of the circuits that we're using mm-hmm. is based on a philosophy of, of what of, we were just talking yeah, about. Yeah, of where it could be either or both or neither, right. then that will permeate culture and the way that we operate these computers and the way that they shape our thinking and the way that we relate to one another in the way that this binary nonsense has shaped the contemporary society. Or, yeah, yeah. You know, and that... That really, uh, you know, and then there's also like, uh, you know, Eric Wargo's time loops, which we were talking about at breakfast, where yeah. he's he's making a pretty solid argument, at least to me, that um, the, you know, quantum indeterminacy is actually information. It's not like what we think of as randomness is not actually uh, non-deterministic. It's information coming from the future state of that system. And so we're living in like a block of time where past, present and future are in some sense all simultaneous. And so, you know, then, then, you know, by doing that, we can return to this notion of uh, like right now, randomness and irrationality are the great externals. 
you know, they're like, it's the external cost that we're ignoring. Like it, right. in, in behavioral economics, um, shout out to SFI external professor, Simon Dedeo at Carnegie Mellon, who says, um, like behavioral economics is all based on the notion that, um, originally that, that people are, are rational, that everyone's <laughs> acting in self-interest. And then more recently, it's been based on the notion that people are not actually rational, but in but it's based but on it's this idea both. that rational is this thing, this objective thing. Right. When in reality, have you ever made what seemed to you an irrational decision? No, <laughs> no, you have not. Everything you did, you had a reason for it. And so like- Even today, if the reason was bad or right, like Right, like later you may be like, duh, that was stupid. Right, yeah. But like you were acting on the best information you had at the time. Totally. You know, and so like this notion that the other is not actually irrational, the, you know, that the other, that everyone is acting on some kind of reasoned consideration mm -hmm. is sort of, I think, philosophically akin to this notion that randomness is not actually what we have learned to believe randomness is, but that it is, it's a pattern that's like beyond wherever we are currently in, in our efforts to model the universe. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think it, it, if, if we flip that switch, if we like stand to the right, just two degrees and right. start seeing the world like that instead Everything will change. All kinds of culture wars will resolve yeah. because people will be, begin to be able to model one another's internal lives in a way that we understand where the other person is, the coming. opponent is coming from, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and then we'll be able to start caring more about, uh, you know, the, the perspectives and experiences of the non-human mm -hmm. as well, mm. you know, and that, Animals, and then we can talk about like saving the world, <laughs> you know, like then we can talk about like, okay. Is like, that all like a tricky way of just preaching or tr pointing towards presence, like present state of being? Well, I mean. Well, if you consider presence like to be the hyper timed here and now, like I think maybe this is the problem that a lot of people have is they and I'm sure I'm guilty of it too, just as a disclaimer, but uh, I think people have trouble seeing the future and the past of who, whoever they are interacting with and mm -hmm. whatever, you know, and, and realizing, yeah, that those people have their reasons, although it may seem irrational to our constructive reality, mm -hmm. that they have a different one. And so basically it's just, it's not even like we, we hardly ever meet someone that we disagree with as an individual we meet their construct our constructs like collide basically yeah, yeah 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 so i don't know that like i mean i think that there are plenty of examples from you know the spiritual traditions of people that were like extremely present total assholes mm -hmm. yeah. you know that like they they shout out shotgun tronco <laughs> <laughs> or, or like, uh, you know, they, they talk about that with psychic inflation under the influence of LSD, where you think you like, oh, I'm God. And all of you are like the solid, like all of you are just dreams I'm having. It's and, like solipsism. Yeah, yeah. That, that, it, that I think that you can be present and still lack the like cognitive sophistication to step into the shoes of the other as they actually experience themselves, which is why you have so much abuse from spiritual teachers saying like, Oh, I raped you, but really 
it was God's will, <laughs> you know, or, you know, like really we know what's best, you know, we're going to, we're going to introduce modern technology to your little tribe because we're the illuminated West and you're just a bunch of savages, you know, and like, you can be very present and still fall prey to that kind of nonsense. But I do think that presence is required. It's, it's necessary, but not sufficient for mm-hmm. being able to really like, you have to listen, right? Like you yeah. have to be present and like really like make an effort to mm-hmm. see things from the other person's point of view. So yes. <laughs> uh, what about, what about yeah. uh, you guys? We got load in, in uh, like just under two hours. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, uh, what time is it? Did you get a message back from Kevin? Probably? I did. Oh, cool. Yeah. So are we're, in... we're all good to go for Meow Wolf tonight. Yeah. Sweet. So oh, are cool. you guys going to collab? You want to collab with me? Whatever. I don't know. Well, I'm just going to bring ex- more than I need and we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, you know, obviously symbiosis is a, a beautiful thing. Yeah. And, and as I was telling you guys before we started recording, I think it's, it would be, uh, in terms of like, dispelling this nonsense around evolution as competition like the most of the most effective forms of competition in a complex ecosystem are social they're not individual they're collaborative it's like you know team teamwork is usually the strategy so uh i do think i do think that um it would be foolish of me as an evolutionary thinker to go to the show tonight and paint my own picture <laughs> while you paint something that I know for a fact is going to sell. Um, <laughs> and I'm like sitting on this stack of unsold artwork, which by the way, um, so you don't want to paint with me is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I'm saying is what I'm saying is that I, I think that the most, uh, the most effective and, and competitive a strategy in living systems is collaborative promiscuity. Mm. And so I'm, I'm down to, uh, to paint with you both. Cause it's Sweet. more fun. It's more, it's more, you get more, uh, novelty mm-hmm. out of it, you know, like just as a quickie, um, you know, if you think about it, like mathematically, uh, two times two times two is eight. Um, but two plus two plus two is six, Yeah, you know? And so there's, a, I think there's a sense in which like there's a syntax or a structure where if you, instead of just adding things, arranging them in, in a, in, in forms, uh, there's an emergent order that comes out of that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's what they shout out to my employer. That's, that's what, uh, Santa Fe Institute spends all day, every day studying in all kinds of different systems. And if, if you're still swimming in this sea of sciencey nonsense, then, um, you're not drowning in it, then you gotta go check them out. Cause, uh, a lot of my thinking has come out of these, like the science of emergent order and, and self-organizing complexity and nice. that kind of stuff. Well, um, so obviously the world is a really complex place that we uh, can barely language sometimes, although you do it very well. Do you have any advice for an individual, um, maybe 
as an addition to what we already talked about uh, to navigate this complex world. Uh, is it, to me, one thing that just I, I just thought of was the thing we were talking about earlier today was um, accepting versus rejecting your path. Is it as simple? I mean, I obviously you can't answer complexity with simplicity all the time, but can, is a starting point maybe to um, just accept how complex the world is and, and, and realize that whatever reality bubble you're living in isn't the whole picture or maybe the maps, not the territory kind of thing. I think it's important for people. And it's funny cause we did have this super soulful, you know, conversation <laughs> with like stories and not just like, downloads yeah. uh, before this, but that's always how it goes. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I think that yeah, it's important for everyone. If you have the luxury of doing so, if you have the time, the attention, the energy, the bandwidth mm-hmm. to inquire into who you really are, then it's important to ask yourself moment to moment and not settle on the answer and decide that that's the person that you are, but really continue asking this question, you know, who am I? Am, and, and you know, that takes a lot, that question takes a lot of different forms with respect to what you just asked. The question is, am I the kind of person that needs to go wander off the edge of the map and explore? Or am I right now in this moment, the kind of person who feels overwhelmed and needs to retreat into my cave, you know, and I feel like these two, like I, you know, I have this video on my Patreon uh, where I'm talking about how the antidote to fear is curiosity, but it's equally true that like, you know, you, you, not all curiosities are safe, right? you know, and that like, there are times when it's like really not advised to like (laughs) try and pick the lock on the NSA headquarters, you know, like (laughs) don't go there, allow your curiosity to rest. Be scared. Yeah. Be like, allow a little fear of God into your heart, you know? Um, and, and knowing, knowing what you need in any given moment, you know, like if you're afraid Asking yourself, like, am I really, am I safe? Mm-hmm. And like, do I need, do I need to retreat to a position of safety before I can really reach out into the world with curiosity? Mm-hmm. That's an important question. You know, yeah. um, I err on the curious. And as a matter of consequence, I've ruined any hope I have of like <laughs> making a difference as a scientist. Mm-hmm. Because now the questions that I'm asking are like so far beyond the comfort zone of the, of, of the scientific institution that even where even when I'm dealing with maverick researchers, they're far more comfortable, probably due to the trauma of higher education, of working on a humble question, you know, being yeah. like, I'm not going to solve that. I'm not going to write the great American novel, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Whereas, like, I am definitely... Uh, you're you know, an, an Icarus, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm a moth, yeah, you know, yeah. and I have to temper that with, you know, like a real sort of respect from my limitations and my, yeah, yeah. you know, where my, my power really lies. And so I think that that's your sort of takeaway is, is just like, don't settle on a story of who you are, but really remain in 
that open inquiry moment to moment about where your growth, your evolutionary edge really is right now, Mm -hmm. you know, and like where, where, where does it need to go? Does it need to go, you know, fight a foreign war like Lord Byron, you know, just because you're like an addict to adventure and like the, the prospect of being a family man is a bummer, you know, like, or do you, you know, or, or is it really, you know, are you going to find that these, these, uh, binaries, you know, this notion that the adventure is out there is a toxic delusion. And that really, you could stand, you know, that, that, you know, parenthood is a profound adventure and that the, you know, that, you know, that there are in some sense it, to the extent that you can bring an infinite attention to it. And that's, that's like a a challenge, Mm -hmm. right? Is like, I dare you to try and find the edge of your own mind, you know, find the (laughs) bottom Mm -hmm. of your own mind. And if you can find the bottom of your own mind, go for it, go, go colonize Mars, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. but don't go colonizing, like don't go colonizing Mars thinking that Maybe. you're going to get there and you're going to find the thing that you're looking for. Right. You mm-hmm. know, right. because you're not, you're not, it's not out there because there is no there, you know, it's, it's, it's everything is it's folded. All, uh, non-locality hyper location in time, right? Yeah. Something yeah. Like that. Yeah. This, know. this notion that, that, I mean, we've made it all the way around the earth looking for, over there and then we made it all the way back to where we started yeah. as a species and now we're like well maybe maybe if we just create a digital copy of everything <laughs> then we'll find it there or maybe <laughs> if we go explore space we'll find it there and we're just buying the same bullshit that they were they were sold on 500 years ago yeah. you know what does it take to get you on the ship so that you can be, you can feed yourself into the sausage grinder of interplanetary capitalism, right? <laughs> Fuck that. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> sit down for a while and like see if you can feel your own heartbeat. I was in an yeah. Alex Gray, uh, Alex and Allison Gray workshop at Maps in 2010, um, before the Maps conference, where Alex and Allison led us through this this guided meditation, where. Alex was sort of like treating each of us like we were one of his paintings Mm -hmm. and he was guiding us through feeling into all of the different layers of the human body into your veins and your, you know, your musculature and your bones. And I got so uncomfortable, (laughs) right? It's like, I love, you know, like that motherfucker, Jason Silva, who, uh, you know, the, the, he's like the techno boner prophet of, you know, non-contemplative singulatarian, you know, wannabe immortals. Mm -hmm. And he has this idea, you know, that like, oh, I'll find it. I'll find it in the machine. And it's like, no, dude, like you're not going to find it in the machine if you can't find it in the woods. And when I heard him, um, all of the horrible things I just said about him, when I, (laughs) when I heard him in conversation with another friend, mentor, uh, Eric Davis, uh, this, I, someone I really look up to. Um, and Eric was talking to him about, 
experience, you know, because Jason talks, he's got that YouTube channel Shots of Awe, mm-hmm. where he's just sharing the things that, you know, get him off. Like these like, little it, orgasmic Yeah, little, or little, little, ex- <laughs> yeah, little ecstatic selfie videos that he does where he's ranting to the same four chord symphonic stock music every fucking week. <laughs> um, but he's got this, he's got this thing where he's like, oh, these are the ideas that blow my mind. And then... Eric was like, that's, you know, I go into the woods and I feel that in the woods, Mm -hmm. you know, he's like, do do you ever, do you ever go sit under a tree and like feel that? And Jason was like, I can't feel it in the woods. (laughs) So too much Adderall. Well, it's, I think it's, no, I just think it's the, you know, you're like, you get to a point where you're, you're chasing something and you're chasing it and you're chasing it and you're overstimulated. Mm -hmm. And the thing that, you know, like the, you're, you're, you've got everything turned up so loud that you don't even hear the music anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, all you hear is n- the noise, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, if we, you're going to chase yourself off a cliff like that. Yeah. And if you're charismatic enough to be Jason Silva, you're going to drag a whole bunch of people with you, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not okay. Yeah. Um, maybe in the greatest cosmic scheme of things, it is okay, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but it does seem to me like a tragedy that we're at a point now where it is so hard for people to go sit under a tree and yeah. be quiet, mm-hmm. you know? It used to be a lot easier. It's, <laughs> it's a tough time. I used to have so much fun sitting in the woods and, you know, you quiet down. Eventually the birds start like walking on branches over you and the whole forest comes alive. And I can't tell you the last time I did that. It's like, I can't find time to just chill out. You yeah, know, you got to make that time. Yeah. And I mean, I, don't do it, but <laughs> <laughs> I know. But you're slightly more likely to do it now after yeah, this conversation, exactly, and so sure. am I, because otherwise I'm a hypocrite. Yeah, <laughs> it's like we don't want to be hypocrites. Uh, but I mean, you, we can do it in our, you know, we do it in our homes, mm-hmm. right? I mean, just quieting the mind, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of where we're headed. Try not streaming Spotify 24 hours a day. Yeah, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, I don't know if you know this, listeners, but um, I. I, I Doug Rushkoff mentioned on one episode of his Team Human podcast that the the amount of energy conser- consumed by cell phone towers and server farms to stream two hours of Netflix is equivalent to running your television for an entire year. I mean, not, not your television, your refrigerator what? for an entire year. Two hours. So if you're binge watching, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever, the OA... Uh, or, you know, (laughs) the office. Yeah. Then, then you are, then you got to shut your damn mouth when it comes to giving people a hard time about Bitcoin. Okay. Or (laughs) fossil fuels or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it is, I mean, you're probably driving a car anyway, but yeah, yeah, you may be driving a Tesla, but your phone is not, (laughs) Yeah. you know, your phone is still coal powered, unfortunately in a lot of places. And you know, so anyway, so t- turn this podcast off right now. Shut it all down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stop listening. <laughs> if you can, if you can hit your own zero point while listening to us gab on and on, then, um, then maybe, then, then, then please introduce yourself to me unless that would be like trying to save a drowning man. Right. <laughs> <laughs> In which case, stay on the beach. The world needs you. What's, what do you think? Yeah, well, Michael, do you have any... How far are we on there? Uh, hour 40? 
You want to go another 20 minutes? Sure. Um, is this a, an ordinarily a two-hour podcast? Yeah, it doesn't no, have to be doesn't any length. Have to really. be. We can stop now too. I don't know if you. Want we got to get ready for our party too. Man. We do. Yeah, but but wait, but wait. I feel like mm, I feel like I I want to ask you guys some questions. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, we forgot to mention that Kevin gave us a piece of advice last time. He was like, you "Should tell people to like ask you questions too, so that it flows." Both yeah. Ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for both of you guys. And Thanks, just man. because I have a, you know, a rampant intellect doesn't mean that I don't, I, mean, I recognize there are so many different forms of wisdom and intelligence and so on in the world. And I actually think that all the people that were telling me I think too much as a kid were right. <laughs> and that, and that it, it occludes it occludes really important things like matters of the heart, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And both of you guys, I've gone through all. I mean, I'm a pretty happy guy right now because I'm a new dad and mm-hmm. blah blah blah. But like overall, I'd say in my life I've been a pretty miserable sack of shit. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm curious to hear you guys talk about how it is, like where where do you think your peace comes from like like what are what are the what are the stories that you tell or the practices that you observe um what what is it in the way that you see the world or you the way that you move in the world that that brings you contentment and well-being and allows you to be uh, that enables you to devote yourselves to your art rather than just worrying all the time about cosmic shit that you have no control over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think like... I'm going to take that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's taken years and years, but I've gotten to the point where I'm not... Uh, I try not to be too anxious about what's coming up. Um, I try not to long for perceived better times in the past um and letting go of expectations of reality because i have no idea why i'm here or what the purpose of it all is and and especially letting go of the expectation of happiness and just being sitting down and like kind of just following what i'm have the impulse to do and to create and when a happy fun time comes up it's wonderful and then I watch it and celebrate in that moment, but then I just watch it and I watch it come up and then it starts to dissipate. And it was like, wow, that was cool. I got to have fun. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like a little <laughs> reminder. You're all, like, yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's fun. But like, there's no expectation of like constant happiness or like, I'm not generally happy or jovial, <laughs> you know? But when it arises, I'm so excited for it to yeah. happen. But then it's also like not clinging to any sort of phase that arises. I mean, you just watch these waves come in and come out and uh, being okay with all of them because they all inform each other and you learn something from every flavor of experience. And uh, I don't know. I think that's bringing like a calmness and a contentness in life, you know. Uh, yeah, just releasing the expectations and watching it happen and uh, not getting – and also um, – removing the idea of like this is john doing it and i own this shit you know yeah, letting yeah. that letting that go too yeah. 
That's key. Yeah, I mean, you brought up a good point that peace isn't happiness, you know. That, mm-hmm. I think those get conflated a lot, you know. Like, uh, I think peace, like what you're saying, is just not, is, is just kind of being like, okay, that just happened. And uh, I don't know why, but I'm going to try and do my best to not freak out. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm not going to lie, like, I'm I'm not... My piece uh, that I, uh, you know, maybe that you, you see in my online persona is is through the lens of, it's filtered through the lens of all this art that I make. And like, if I have any piece, it's it's more a piece of just, of just knowing that, okay, at least I rank, extricated myself from the rat race a bit. And and knowing that my purpose is is self defined, you know, and so you know, my self defined purpose basically is to be as creative as possible, and to to help as many people as I can. And I don't, you know, I I get stressed out just like anybody. I don't think our stresses are necessarily the same, but like, I don't. I don't sell paintings that often. Um, so it's like, so my, my stresses mostly come from financial stuff, but I've learned, and this has worked most of the time in the past, if like I'm getting low on money, if I, it, it's almost like a forward escape of like create more art and then someone notices. It's, it's some something akin to like the idea of like sacrificing that, that like urge to like i don't know be super financially stable that that wins you this kind of feeling of i don't know <laughs> maybe just overall contentment like i'm overall contented and and peaceful um but then i have like these little it just like life is you know you go over speed bumps all the time it's like you're speeding along and and if you're not paying attention or being present, like you're talking about earlier, like you're gonna hit that speed bump going at like 50 miles an hour. And so I've just learned that, like, oh, there are a lot of speed bumps, and I've been known to uh, make mistakes in the past. And there's there's something about like I don't know. I started I started meditating in like my early 20s. That really helped me. Like at first, I was like, oh, I can be happy sometimes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but then like you know, again, I, I was like, okay, I'm happy. I'm speeding down the road at 50 miles an hour. And then boom, and a, a speed bump happens. And, you know, like I was more prepared for it than I would have been, but it's like hard to quantify that kind of thing too. But there's this thing in Zen where it's like, you're, you're meditating and, and it's always like, and I, I kind of do this with my paintings too. It's, it's always like, oh, you just missed the mark. Oh, that was almost there. Oh, that, and it's like this kind of like shaping every moment. And like, you're, it's really hard to be fully, fully present. I think like the guy you were talking about earlier, um, Gary Weber. Yeah. Gary Weber being the most lucid human after spending 35 years meditating, he, his ego finally went offline, you know? And, And so we're, we're, you know, you try and be as present as you can, but I don't know how to word this but 
that maybe the moment is all so hyper compressed from past, future, present, and from all these locations that it's it's hard to catch up to it because it's just like this and this and this and this, and so just trying to find that rhythm and that flow is like a a huge huge part. But I forget all the time, you know. Like I'm a very forgetful person, and I don't know. It's just. Uh, I think the overall piece is just knowing that, like, okay, I'm on a path that at least feels like I had the agency to choose, you know. Do we have time for me to ask you guys one more question? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Totally. If you were not limited by the media that you have learned to work in, like if, if you know, if you had just sort of had, you know, stepped into uh, – like a godlike creator role and you could make whatever that you wanted to make. What, like what would the goal of your creativity be at that point? Like if you could do anything flawlessly, anything, anything, if you could make anything, like if you just had control over the entire universe, I'd make another universe. But like with what? With like like what, what would you, like yeah in like mind? what 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 would what would the the goal be? To make more of me to make more universes, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> that's sick, man. I know it is. I know. I know. It's like that's kind of like that um, that spiritual uh, ego inflation we were kind of talking about earlier. Yeah, I don't know. Godhood application denied. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, check back in in a million years. <laughs> um, I don't, that's a tough question. Um, yeah, probably some sort of like hyper object. I, but why? Why? Yeah. Why? Why? Why, why do why? you? I guess what I'm really why asking do is, create? why do you create at all? Um, yeah. What are you going for? I'm. I. I like to explore what we can barely talk about, and when I'm ex- like when I'm just the way I start paintings, at least usually most ninety percent of the time is just like taking color or form and just flowing with it. And then like, it like comes down to this thing. And usually I make it into a thing, you know? And it's like, okay, what is that? It's almost this like, it's like that feeling you get when you wake up from a dream and you can kind of remember the dream, but it's like slipping away and you're like, and you grab one last like nugget and you're like, okay, that meant this in terms of like how my waking life is going. Like my, there's something back there trying to tell me and maybe all of us, I hope, I don't know, you know, if I'm, you know, like a part of the human race, like things that are coming through the thing I call me, are just as, um, you know, just as valid as anyone else. So it's like that. It's like I'm trying to reach back for something that's like just out of reach of our like conscious experience. And, uh, but I don't know, like, I don't know if that's doing anything for anyone but me. (laughs) (laughs) Now that you pose that question, to be honest, just to be like completely honest, like, I want it to, and it seems like it is. People tell me it is. I don't know if they're just bullshitting me, but, um, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it helps other people remember 
the forgotten dream that's kind of what that's that's my intention basically is to like remember your or you know remember your dream not only your dream that you were dreaming last night but your overall like oh like you know i don't need to be working at this useless job i need to find a way to wiggle out of this thing you know or 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 whatever it is that you're attached to i don't know i think that that's the that's the overall purpose um expanding consciousness i don't know (laughs) i don't know it's hard it's hard that's queering the mundane (laughs) what about you john yeah yeah so it's i don't know if i have a specific thing i'm trying to create um i don't know i'm like a physical creature and we manipulate physical objects and but i suppose what I'm trying to do with myself and art is to create tuning forks. Um, lately I've been paying a lot of attention to these four things, four ideas of creativity, community, health, and wealth. And like focusing on those, uh, focusing on those personally in the way I interact with the world, which then I think is maybe manifest in my art and like my whole sort of aura or being. And that, it can, other people can come in contact with that and like resonate with that idea. And also I can be open to and resonate to other people that are resonating at that frequency and together we can share that and uh, tune together and we can like uh, communally become more creative, become better friends, um, become healthier psychologically and physically and also become wealthy, not just in like the dwellings we can afford and clothing, but just in support. And, uh, you know, wealth kind of like seeps into all those categories. You're wealthy when you are, uh, can incorporate all those juicy, fun, uplifting things. So I don't know, I guess like what I'm doing is trying to, uh, vi- like, find peace in those principles and share it with other people. And it can maybe be something we spread out and share together. I don't know. That's kind of what I'm going for. Like, but I can't really think of like particularly what I want to create. I I don't know. It seems like this place is like the perfect stage. I can't figure out how I'd want to change it, even though it hurts a lot of the time. I don't know. It's weird. I really don't know what I'm doing, you know, but yeah. Like, uh, you're talking about if we were not kind of constrained by the media, we've, we've, uh, worked so hard to cultivate or whatever. I mean, I, like I said earlier, I want to do more stand up because like, there's something about (laughs) laughter that I think is, is spiritual. I really do. I really think that it's like first, it's like, it's like sneezing or something. It's like mm-hmm. it, you can't control it. They're like joy when orgasms when you're yeah, belly exactly. laughing with the whole group. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I don't know. I've had, so I I did 5-MEO for the first time this winter. And I woke up just like, I, I don't remember like everything that happened, but I woke up hysterically laughing. 
just <laughs> laughing my ass off. <laughs> and then I cried, and then I laughed again, and it was just kind of like this whole, like, just, like, release, you know? And I think that there's something to that. And I don't, um, I don't know exactly what that is. It's hard to word. But there's some sort of, like, you know, we hold, we hold ourselves um, a lot. We hold back a lot, I think, you know? as people just but by virtue of living in a society mm-hmm. and like talking to people like uh, or, or joking around with random people at the grocery store is you know that's fun and i don't know it, it, is that a creative thing that i'm doing like probably i don't know to me sometimes that even just like bullshitting with like the clerk or a waitress is like it's more i feel like oh that did something Mm-hmm. And then, but then I like put up a painting online and it gets like 600 likes and I'm still kind of feeling like empty in in this way, you know, like, I don't know. So, so there. Well, <laughs> you know, you, you made me laugh just saying that you wanted to be a stand-up comedian. <laughs> <laughs> Zing. Yeah. Who's the stand-up now? Looks like Michael's got a career. Out of it. Actually, uh, you know, it was like two years ago or something. I had a dream that Dave Chappelle came to me and told me that I should become a stand-up comedian. Really? And I was like, bro, <laughs> bro, like, can't take I know I'm funny, you but I, I can't write jokes. Like, it's all on the spot. And he's like, yeah, that's like, you just have that's to get through it. Starts. That's how it starts. You just got to get through that. You got to learn to, you got to weather it, you know? But it's funny because it's like, I know so many people that are, like the podcast thing and the stand-up comedy thing seem oh, to be very intimately very acquainted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, so I don't well, know. Well, yeah, it, one of the reasons I started this podcast is the community thing. Like, I, f- I really do feel like we have something special, and it's but it's not fully articulated, you know what I mean? And so I think that the more people in our community that we interview, it's like we're gonna, something's gonna come out of this. And just for people at home to realize that, like, we're just people normal people just dudes decided when girls yeah and you know figure our thing out and like you were saying you you keep asking yourself that question who am i who am i it's like being open to that is like i think that might actually be the most creative thing you can do like the the best medium that you have available is your is the self the idea of the self Stephen Batchelor wrote this. I can't remember. I think it was, oh God, Buddhism without beliefs or something. I, I can't remember where, which of his writings I read this, but he said, um, he said that uh, when we talk about something being original, we mean that we feel the origin in it. It's not that it's a new thing or a unique thing. Mm. It's not its novelty. Uh-huh. It's not its, but that like originality is, uh, is about being able to feel the source of creation through and, a work. And I think that's why I like like podcasting and and comedy so much is because with art and even with music and storytelling, sometimes it's it, it there's this extra filter or step or something that where I'm like, okay, here's an image 
but it's not just me like saying some words and you getting it right away and either laughing or being like, hmm, or like, you know, just keep listening. I don't know. So I don't know. It's cool to talk about. And I found that like, I used to not talk like for a long time. I don't know if it was just like out of fear or what, but like, um, I think that like speaking for me has really uh, opened me up and helped me like organize what's up here in my head, you know? Otherwise, it's just this kind of like jumbled mess of thoughts that never actually get manifested into the world. And I'm just like up there like thinking all the time, you know? <laughs> and. And I know the purpose of meditation is to kind of, if there's not, if there's a purpose at all, is to kind of uh, just watch all that go by. And that definitely helped me a lot, but I think there's definitely something to speaking too. I don't know. You know that. I, I don't know is a good place to tie a bow on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. It's pretty much what everything comes down to. I don't know. Yeah. So the more I know, I don't know shit. Who am I? I, I don't know. Who am I? <laughs> well, uh, Michael, do you have anything coming up? Uh, like any events or anything? Or? Tonight at Meow Wolf. <laughs> yeah, I'm painting with you guys. <laughs> everyone will be hearing this like three or four weeks from now. So. Yeah. So by, by, so by now. So catch us in the past. By the time you've heard this, you will, you will uh, have already collapsed the wave function of our creativity <laughs> by observing it on Instagram post facto. So thanks, assholes. Uh, we were really trying for something fresh, but it was bound within the matrix of your quantum observations. No, um... I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm taking a kind of a breather from musical performances and most of my painting and stuff. I'm kind of just, you know, taking time to be with the kid and and to read and to level up. But, um, you know, Future Fossils is still coming out uh, slower than it was. It's it's like every two weeks for the time being. And that's a, that's a manageable pace. paternal leave. Yes. Basically. Yeah. And by the way, if you all haven't heard, Michael's podcasts are amazing. Um, Thanks. Yeah, I highly recommend them. They're great. But yeah, so there's a, you know, there's a, a Patreon and I put, you know, when it, when I am motivated to create something, be it music or, or coloring book pages or podcast episodes or essays or whatever, it goes up there. And um, actually, the the really cool thing coming up, I don't know, this may have happened already by the time this is out, but I've started using the Patreon community as a place where we can ha have a book club. And we're, yeah, we're yeah, where we, so the next, the next book club meeting sometime in April is going to be on uh, Diana Slattery's book, Xenolinguistics, which is about psychedelics and evolution of language and consciousness and how, you know, the amazing insights that she derived from 400 solo trips over 10 years. Wow. And, um, and a lot of the thinking that I've, you know, vocalized on this episode has been inspired in, in large part by her, her very rigorous trip reports in this book. And, you know, like the ternary logic and all that stuff is... So like it's a community thing and I guess what I'm saying is like if you're interested in being a part of these kinds of conversations then find me, you know? I mean as much as I loathe Facebook, we have a Facebook group and <laughs> the people in it are really quality people and 
And um, it's not it's not just about me and my message. It's like you were saying, John. It's about you know participating in something through which all of us can cultivate this deeper, you know, more peaceful, wealthier, mm-hmm. more meaningful life together. And that's kind yeah. of where I'm headed, you know? Right so, on. you know, there is a field, right? I'll meet you there. So yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll see you in the field. Yeah. Wonderful. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of RCAF Podcast. For additional images and notes on this episode, you can check out our website, rcafpodcast.com. And you can find me, Andrew Norris, at andrew.norris.arts on Instagram. And andrewnorrisarts.com is my website. I also have links on my website to episodes as well as all my best paintings. And you can find me, John Speaker. My website is johnspeaker.com. On Instagram, I'm at John Speaker. And on Facebook, John Speaker Art. And we want to give a special thanks to Blair Speaker, John's lovely wife and creative director of the podcast. She also updates the website and does all the podcast notes. So thank you, Blair. And we'd also like to thank Tyler Billman. He created the music for this podcast. You can find Tyler on SoundCloud and Instagram. His name is Get Billsman. That's G-E-T-B-I-L-L-S-M-A-N. Thanks again for listening. Peace. Thank you. (laughs) 